Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What's up, you guys? Hope you are all doing amazing. These are some crazy, crazy times. I hope you are all staying healthy and happy. So I wanted to take a break from the coronavirus news stream right now and share with you guys a podcast that I had done with Bill Von Hippel. This is an amazing podcast. It is a really, really interesting dive into anthropology, evolution, where we've come from as humans, the adaptations that made us human, and all the ways that these adaptations may have enabled us to grow big brains, become better hunters, etc. It is a fascinating, fascinating podcast. I think you will really, really like it. Bill has been on the Joe Rogan Experience, which is where I first heard about him, and I was really stoked to talk to him in this show. As you will hear in this uh, episode, we talk a lot about the whites of our eyes, adaptations for hunting. These are all things I talk about in my book, The Carnivore Code. You can still get it, www.thecarnivorecodebook.com. It's already a bestseller, you guys, and it is coming very soon to much wider distribution. Please check it out. Let me know what you think. Leave me a review on Amazon if you can. I think you will really enjoy that if you like any of these topics. I think understanding where we have come from is so, so important and crucial in understanding who we are today as humans. Bill Von Hippel also has a book called The Social Leap, which is quite fascinating, and you should check that out as well. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. It is how we get the podcast out to more people. It is crushing it, you guys. We've got over 650 reviews. I want to get to 1,000 really soon. I mean, this podcast hasn't even been alive. This podcast was born less than a year ago. We reach over probably over 180,000 downloads a month right now. We've crested a million downloads total in less than a year, and I want to get to 1,000 reviews on iTunes, so please support the podcast if you appreciate it. Let me know what you would like to hear about on the podcast, and if you guys want me to go back to weekly coronavirus reporting, I can. If you want weekly updates on coronavirus or even daily updates on coronavirus, I will be doing those on YouTube, but I want to share other content that is not completely coronavirus-focused because... So much other stuff is interesting beyond the coronavirus. But if you listen after this episode, I will tell you my thoughts on coronavirus and what I am thinking these days. So enjoy this podcast with Bill Von Hippel and check out my sponsors. We have sponsorship by White Oak Pastures, www.whiteoakpastures.com. They are amazing. In these crazy times of lack of availability of meat, they are doing their best to get people as much of their grass-fed, grass-finished, regenerative agriculture. These guys are the OGs, the true OGs, the true original farmer gangsters of regenerative agriculture. They are putting soil into a much more organic state. They are enriching the soil, which is the answer for our planet. Nothing else can do this. Monocrop agriculture can't do this. Biodynamic plant agriculture really can't do this as well as using animals. We need animals on this planet. White Oak is the mothership, in my opinion. It is so cool. They're amazing. We were going to do White Oak Cella there. We're going to postpone it. We're going to push it back to October. I hope to see you guys all there then. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD at whiteoakpastures.com to get 10% off your first order. Check them out. You will not be disappointed. You can always call them. Give them a call. Talk to Sarah. Tell them I sent you. Ask them what they've got in stock, and they will send you some of the best meat on the planet and organ meats and all kinds of good stuff. Uh, Like I said, they are working very hard to bring us all nourishing food. And if things really go bad, any listener of this podcast has a seat at the table at White Oak Pastures because you know that is exactly where I will be um, in the event that um, everything collapses. But I don't think things will collapse. Whiteoakpastures.com. I love them. Please support them. My other people, my tribe. The other place I might go if things got really bad would be to Houston to hang out with my friends at White Oak, not White Oak, at Ancestral Supplements. These are really my people. I'm hopefully going to get to go visit them soon and do more barbarian stuff. I love them deeply but you know them well. They are ancestralsupplements.com. They are putting back in what the modern world has left out. They are making grass-fed, grass-finished, desiccated organ capsules from New Zealand. They have all kinds of new products recently, you guys. Um, I just saw they have MoFo, which you all know is the male optimization formula that is good for females as well because we all need hormones. We all need testosterone, and that is important for everyone's libido, but MoFo has testicle 
and a number of other things, prostate, liver, all kinds of good stuff in MoFo. Check that one out. And intestines. And you know, after the recent conversation with Ben Greenfield, he mentioned he was taking lung and thymus. And I thought, isn't that a great immunologic cocktail, um, especially for a respiratory virus like Corona that affects those things. So they make lung, they have eyes, they have fish eggs now, which will get you all those fat soluble nutrients. As you guys know, nutrition is about immunity. Immunity is about nutrition. We are wild beings and there is not a group of people on this planet more so that I agree with, that I am in line with, that is more my heart and soul tribe that also believes that we are wild ancestral beings who are strong in the face of whatever nature throws at us, who exist in nature in a natural state and those are the people in ancestral supplements. So my mission and their mission is so congruent and they are helping us get these organ meats nose to tail from grass-fed, grass-finished cows in New Zealand in a way that is much more convenient than um, eating the organs in the reality, though I think we should be eating organs for real if we can. If you can't get it or you're traveling or you need organs that you can't get, like eyeball or testicle or whatever, Ancestral Supplements is the answer, you guys. Check them out, www.ancestralsupplements.com. You can use the code SALADINOMD at their Shopify site for 10% off and let them know I sent you. And they are putting back in what the modern world has left out. So many things are left out. Listen after the podcast for what is going on with me. I love you all. All right, Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here, my friend. Thanks. My pleasure. You know, I've heard you on a lot of podcasts. I've heard you on Rogan and a couple of other ones talking about aspects of human evolution, sort of where we came from. And this story is so fascinating to me. I think origin stories in general are quite fascinating, but the way you've told it, I find particularly compelling. And you've written this book, The Social Leap, and what you talk about this. But I'm so excited to have you know this conversation on the podcast to kind of dig into some of this with you. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this, and then let's let's kind of let's talk about the human origin story and where we've come from as far as we can reconstruct it. Sure, absolutely. So I'm a social psychologist. What I'm fundamentally interested in is how people interact with each other today. And I spent most of my career working on exactly that problem, just focused on today and the way humans are now. But about 12 years ago or so, I started to feel like the story was incomplete, that we knew about a lot of interesting things that people did, but we were missing this kind of glue to tie it together. And lots of people have have felt that same way, that we need to find the function of all these things if we're going to find the glue that ties it together. And so I started becoming very interested in evolutionary theory. And then I started to realize, well, I, I'm not, I need to know not just evolutionary theory, but our particular evolutionary story as humans, you know, following us back from when we split with their chimpanzee cousins. And so I spent about that amount of time slowly trying to build that picture together in my head by reading, you know, the archaeology and anthropology and biology and all that. And I do think that's helped me come to a better understanding of how we are today. But it's also been super interesting and fun, just kind of getting a picture of of our complete human story over the last six or seven million years and how that ends up with the, the people that we are today. It's, it's pretty crazy to think about. It's, it's hard for me to even consider that scale. You know, I mean, I've been alive for just over 40 years and, you know, yeah. and, and, but to think that, that our, our pre-human ancestors, these kind of like in between primates and, and humans, and we can, I want to walk people through all of those pieces, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking six to 7 million years ago. Is yeah. that pretty much what's agreed upon in the archaeology, anthropology literature that, that, that I, I think that the first split was even before that, right? That there was, there's an interesting split that happens, and this is something that's quite fascinating to me. I think even 60 million years ago when two lineages of apes split and one of them could make vitamin C and the other couldn't. But beyond that, it seems like something happened six to seven million years ago, and that was the beginning of our distant, distant, distant ancestors. Is that right? Yeah, that's basically right. So if you, there's lots of different ways to look and to try to find that number and we can radio date the fossils and, and use other carbon dating. There's lots of ways to date things. We can use, um, uh, genetic clocks, molecular clocks, where we look for mutations and try to find the common ancestor because we know the rate of random mutations and one species diverge, they get, they start to have different mutations. Mm. And so the good, the, It's a great story when they all come together with the exact same number. Now, that hasn't quite happened yet, and that's why we sit somewhere between, I'd say, on the low side, six million, and on the high side, seven and a half. But six to seven and a half, when you're talking that far ago, 
and not that many fossils and not, you know, not tons of data to work with anymore. We don't have that many um, primate cousins anymore or great ape cousins. Uh, that's still pretty accurate story. I'm confident it'll get better and better as they discover more fossils and they get, and the techniques get more refined. But you're absolutely right. There's been an enormous number of divergences. So, you know, we split with gorillas. I, I can't remember exactly some, I, somewhere between eight and 12 million years ago. And, and sometimes those splits, we then get back together with them a little bit. So, you know, our ancestry is really murky and just human nature being what it is. It's no surprise that that they can branch and those branches can sometimes come back together and make the picture a little bit more complicated. And so what happened six and a half million years ago? I think this is one of the most interesting parts of the story. Something had to happen because as, as people have noted, as I talk about in the book, looking at brain size and looking at the evolution of, of chimps and apes and primates, the brain size was pretty constant for 60 million years. You know, we were eating the norm, we were eating primate food, which is primarily plants, as far as we can tell, as far as I'm aware. And the brain size was kind of normal, but something seemed to happen and there's this divergence and it's all kind of tied to this brain size concept. But what, what do we think happened six and a half, seven million years ago that, that caused this schism and the beginning of our lineage? Well, it's a total random chance and <laughs> luck that it worked out. And what that total random chance was is that the tectonic plates that currently make up Africa are a plate that's basically the Somali plate and a plate that's the rest of Africa, and, it's, and Africa's tearing apart. So there's basically an upwelling under Africa of um, the Earth's mantle, and that upwelling is pulling the continent in half, well, not in half, the, the small pieces moving to the right, and it's creating the Great African Rift Valley. Now, that's been going on for 30 million years as it slowly works its way from the Red Sea all the way down to the coast of Mozambique. But by six and a half to seven million years ago, what had happened was everything on these side had upwelled enough that essentially there was no rainforest to speak of left on the east side of the Rift Valley. So if you're one of our primate ancestors that was pretty chimp-like from all we can tell, and you lived on the right-hand side, uh, then you, so you were now in a situation where you could no longer just stay with the remaining bits and bobs of rainforest. You literally had no choice but to get down out of the trees, cross some savanna before you get to the next set of trees. And so you need to look for new foods, but you also need to somehow survive life on the ground. And that's something that if you lived on the left side, well, the rainforest is just fine and, and there's no pressure for you to do that. So the big event that pushed it all off was the basic disappearance of the rainforest by virtue of the tectonic activity causing the east side of the Rift Valley to rise up to about a mile high and therefore all the rainforest to dry out. And then, and then these chimps or these, these primates had to move across these open lands, which was new for them, creating selective pressures they'd not been exposed yeah. to before and yeah. exposing and selecting for individuals that might have looked a little bit more like we do. Not yet, not totally, yeah. but a little yeah. bit more. So what do we think happened with, I mean, so when we split off, I mean, is the first ancestor Australopithecus that we know about? Because those fossils are dated to 3.5 or so, right? Yeah. 3.5 million no, we've years got, ago? We've got much older fossils. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, the, but the first step is really not the fossils themselves. But let's take a look. What do chimps do when they're on the savannah? Right. Because the first day, the day it happened, so to speak, you know, it's many, many days. But right. when it happened, you've got chimps who are just living more and more on the savannah. And as luck would have it, we happen to have a group of chimps in Senegal who live on the savannah. And we can look at their activities and how they've adapted to, they, they still, the animal is the same, but how they've socially adapted to life on the savannah to start to get some of the first hints. And interestingly, there's some hints that move them in human directions. They share better with each other. They uh, fashion spears out of sticks. They, they bite the edge and they use them to stab uh, their prey, these small monkeys that they fish out of the hollows of trees. And they travel in larger groups. Um, interestingly, they often sleep in caves. They, they do lots of things that look kind of cool and human-like, although physically they haven't changed at all. They've just kind of changed their social structure in order to manage life where basically they're constantly keeping a lookout for the nearest tree in case a leopard or a um, lion comes after them while they're out on the ground and they're very vulnerable. So there's this, there's a group of primates that have acquired some unique behaviors in an adaptation to this changing environment. Yes. Which yes, includes... That's right. Yeah. And, and so then we move forward and eventually, as you say, we get to Australopithecines. Um, they're still pretty close to chimp-like. We've now moved, you know, three million years have gone by and they've only gained about 70 grams of brain power though. We've gone from a, a basically a 380 gram brain in a chimp 
to about a 450 gram brain in a Australopithecus. And so you'd say, well, you'd think 3 million years in the savanna would give you a little bit more than that. But what that shows us is that their initial strategy to survive in the savanna was not a cognitive strategy. Rather, it was, let's just change the way I live. Let's try to skulk around the edges. Let's do things that make that enable me to survive, but don't necessarily push me down this cognitive pathway that we happen to have chosen, so to speak, for ourselves. And this is where the Lucy skeleton dates yeah, to, right? That's right. Like, after yeah, the, that's right. the the Beatles song, this 3.5 yeah. million. I remember seeing either a reproduction of that or some piece of that growing up in Washington, D.C. at National Geographic as a kid and not really putting all the pieces together. But so Lucy, I mean, people will often say Lucy is like the first pre-human ancestor, but still sort of like this yeah. in-between chimp and right. human. Not and really she's definitely quite not human the first. Human. Right, yeah. right. She's definitely not the first. I mean, imagine if you could sit there and watch it happen in real time and just a video with these sort of, you know, have it yeah. fast forward. It would be super hard for you to say, oh, that one is still an ape and that one's now a human, right? Because right. every single baby looks like its mother. But slowly, slowly over time, those babies are moving in a direction that's us. It's sort of like, you know, if you took a grain of sand and put it in a pile, it's just a grain of sand. You add another one, it's just two. Eventually, a million grains of sand and now you've got a beach. And when did it go from a grain of sand to a beach? Well, that's a hard demarcation point to make. Right. We do it as, as scientists looking back. We say, well, now we've got this species. Now we've got that species. But in actual fact, every single species, the members of that species look just like their mother all the way back through time with these micro changes you'd never notice. So, so Lucy is now very chimp looking. She's, we're, we've moved three million years. And literally, if you saw her in a zoo, you would barely be able to tell her apart from any other chimp with a single super important exception. And that is that she's bipedal, which means she walks on two legs completely upright. Her hips can lock flat, mm -hmm. her knees can lock, and a chimp can't do that. They've got this cute little waddling ga um, gait. Uh -huh. And so her adaptations were in the pelvis and the walking gait, probably because of the way they were moving and between trees and moving around. Do we have any sense of changing a diet there? Because is, is there some hypothesis that the Australopithecines maybe were doing, starting to do a little more scavenging? As you were suggesting, these these primates in Senegal even now are doing some hunting. They're eating some other animals. But when did we start to like maybe get more animal foods in our diet? Yeah, that's a great question. So chimps love to eat meat. Baboons love to eat meat. Lots of primates love to eat meat when they get their hands on it, but they can hardly ever get their hands on it. They're not very right. good at it. Chimps will hunt for monkeys uh, in the rainforest. And when they get lucky, they often surround them, not that they seem coordinated, but they kind of come at them from all sides. And when that happens, it's hard for the monkeys to get away, particularly slow monkeys like colobus monkeys, which are one of their favorites and which sleep most of the day. They just eat leaves. And so the chimps will grab them and eat them, rip them to shreds. And, and so we do have some hunting in our ancestral background. It's mostly male. It's not shared out very well. The, um, the chimps in the savannah share a little bit better. I would suspect that you're absolutely right that Lucy, you know, all the Australopithecines probably were trying their best to include more meat in their diet because think they've lost all the stuff in the trees. You know, chimps at least have access to lots of berries and lots of fruits in the trees. But when the trees are gone, you know, the grasslands don't produce a whole lot of fruits and berries. And so they're going to be forced to be eating more grains and things like that. And, but, and new leaves and things like that. But they're going to obviously, whenever possible, try to get these sort of uh, higher quality items. Now, we don't know for sure what caused Lucy to walk upright. Um, I personally suspect that it's caused by many things, but one of the things that I think probably it is caused by is literally the fear that Australopithecines would have felt when they went out across the open savanna, you know, worried they're going to be attacked. And I think that in order to respond to that fear, they would have brought with them a weapon. And so we know that, that our ancestors that far back couldn't plan for the future. They couldn't say, well, tomorrow I'm going to need X or tomorrow I'm going to feel Y but they could plan for the now. And so if they were scared, they could say, well, I'm gonna bring a big stick with me. So that way, I, cause I'm scared and I wanna fend off anybody. And so that would have put pressure on you to walk upright if you wanna hold something in your hand. But it also would have given you an advantage when a hunting opportunity did come along. Cause now you got this big spear that you've chewed the edge down or a big club that you could whack things with. And so we don't know, total conjecture, but I suspect that they're starting to eat more meat than our chimpanzee cousins do. And there are examples, as you cited, of even primates and, and chimps using tools now, some tools. So oh, yeah. there's, there's precedent for this idea. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all the data suggests that they were cognitively capable. It's just super hard to find out if that's exactly what happened because we can't right. see it. We can't see it because there's no preservation of the organic yeah. matter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we can see exactly. tools. So when do we start to see the first indication that, that our ancestors were hunting animals? There's these two sets of tools, right? There's, like, there's different yeah. types of tools. And when did those come into the picture? So the, the, there's some argument about exactly when, of course, right. but the oldest tools that we that are arguably stone tools that have been shaped. So even chimpanzees will use a stone to pound a nut um, in order to eat, to break open the nut and eat it. But the first time that we see them shaping their tools, the first possible evidence are called Lomequi tools, and they go back to about 3.3 million years ago, so Australopithecus. Uh, they're very barely shaped, and people argue maybe they're not even that old. So this is controversial. It came out a few years ago. If you look at them, you could heft them in your hand and chuck them into the river. You'd never know that anybody had shaped them because it's so barely sharpened edges. You then fast forward to about two and a half million years ago, and now you get to what are called Oldowan tools, named after the Olduvai Gorge, where the Leakeys found them. And those tools have quite clearly been well, if you're expert and look with a microscope, they're quite clearly been sharpened. And so we know that our either Homo habilis or our Australopithecine ancestors were sharpening those tools and using them to cut away at bones. So were they scavenging or were they using them for after they'd done a hunt to maybe they'd beaten something to death or stabbed it with their sticks, which don't survive, of course, were they then using those tools to um, carve open the carcass? Well, yeah, they were carving carcasses with them, but who created the carcass, we don't know for sure, right? Maybe we were scavenging, maybe we were hunting. The first clear sign of hunting is now you go forward to Homo erectus. So now you're 1.8 million years ago, and now we see a much better tool. Uh, it's called an Acheulean tool. It's bifacial. If you found that, you'd instantly go, oh, wow, this was carved by somebody you know, a great effort. It's not easy to carve a rock. And those things were definitely used for um, dismembering animal carcasses. Now, did we hunt them or did somebody else kill them? I think the data show clearly that we hunted them. And the main reason for that is you can see lots of the bone cuts on the upper thigh of the animal. Now, when, an a, when a lion kills a gazelle, for example, first it eats out the stomach and then it eats the upper thigh area because that's where there's the most meat. So if you come to a kill that you're scavenging, and, and a lion has already been there, there's nothing left on the upper thigh. You're wasting your time. Yet we see a lot of bone cuts up there, which suggests to me they killed the animal and that's where they went initially. Otherwise, they'd literally be carving it around the hoof and trying to get little bits yeah. off that. They'd be cutting it on the face and trying to get little bits off that. So we, I think that this is so fascinating. And within the book that I'm writing, I've talked about this hypothesis and, you know, in the, in the gathering of information that I've done as a sort of an armchair anthropologist, um, that I think that this, this, this concordance between, and we can talk about what happened with brain size, right? About this time, yep. 2 million, yep. 1.8 million years ago, as we'll see, this is sort of the inflection point on the brain size curve. And isn't it fascinating that it is about the same time that we see stone tools and evidence for humans hunting and doesn't that bring up a fascinating hypothesis that it was this suddenly, you know, when we had more access to animals, that was what either released or allowed us to become higher brain possessing animals, right? I mean, what do you, I think this is something that you agree with, right? Yes, I totally agree with you. And I would say that um, there's a number of factors that come together that all basically paint that same picture. So we know, well, we don't know. This is all, you know, there's a bits right. of data and, and we have to gather more data because sometimes science corrects itself. But uh, I guess it was a little over a year ago now, a pair of papers were published that argued that a huge part of our brain expansion is brought about by this NOTCH2NL gene. And this is a gene. So one of the ways that evolution works quite commonly is that on a, on a duplication event, it accidentally creates a double copy of a gene. And that's really kind of a fortuitous circumstance because the second copy is no longer needed to do what the first copy did. If you start adjusting the first copy, it won't do its job anymore. But if you've got a spare copy, you can kind of do anything you want with it because the first copy is still doing the proper job that needs to be done. So I think it was uh, around 12 million years ago in our line, that first that duplication event seems to have taken place and it was then turned off. And it sat in our line, this, this sort of gorilla, at that time, gorillas and chimps and us, all the same animal. It sat in that line 
uh, dormant for about 9 million years. And then it turned itself on and duplicated itself. And what this gene does is it maintains neurons as stem cells for longer. And so in other words, they duplicate more before they actually become brain cells. Now, why did it turn on 3 million years ago? Why, why did it sit there for 9 million years and then turn itself on? Well, obviously, it didn't sit there dormant for 9 million years. It probably turned itself on many, many times. But all up until 3 million years ago, every time it turned itself on, it was more of a cost to its bearer than it was a benefit. So they've got, there's this really smart ape out there, but it's no better at coordinating its activities with other apes. It can't hunt better. It just has better conversations. But that's no way to pay the rent on a bigger brain. You've got to bring in more calories. So now when it turns itself on with oscillopithecines, what I believe was going on is this is a point in time where because they're bipedal, they can now rotate their body properly. And because they can ro rotate, their, it's a longer waist, a more flexible shoulder, more flexible arms that they're not using to climb trees all the time. And that rotation allows for proper throwing. Now, the reason that matters is suddenly for the first time ever, these Australopithecines can defend themselves on the savanna by throwing stones to try to keep large predators away. You know, this is regarded as the most important invention in military history, the capacity to kill at a distance. No other animal can do it. And so when an Australopithecine started throwing stones, because of its now bipedalism, it's able to do that. Chimps can't do that very well. Their, their arms and bodies are too tightly wired. And when they do throw, they tend to be two-handed and not very accurate. But now Australopithecines can throw stones. But of course, they're pretty small. And one stone by an Australopithecus isn't going to do that much harm. But a whole bunch of Australopithecines throwing stones could just pelt anything to death. And so suddenly, you've got this ability to throw and now you've got psychological pressure on you to start banding together and cooperating. And suddenly, what you now have is an animal that can work together because at some point they figured that out. Boy, we're all better off if when a leopard or a lion comes at us, rather than scattering for the trees and one of us gets eaten, we hold our ground, throw stones, and none of us get eaten. And, and that event is when now getting smarter would start to have a huge advantage. So they've gained 70 grams of brain over 3 million years without turning that gene on. Well, now they turn the gene on and now they can pay for it because not only can they protect themselves, but as you say, they can use that same capacity to hunt. Why not throw stones to kill something for dinner? Why not just, you know, instead of just protecting yourself? So all that came together. And so the three million years ago is the beginning of that. And you see it really take off around two million years ago. And that is so cool that when we also see the stone tools involved in the hunting and suddenly we can exactly. get animals. And I love that you highlighted the fact that we really need to pay the rent on a bigger brain. The yeah. brain is a very metabolically active tissue and based in terms of the size of the brain relative to the amount of energy that it uses, there's a great mismatch there relative to other organs in the body. From what I've learned, the two of the biggest energy demanding organs are the brain and the gut. And so this is also pretty fascinating to me, this sort of expensive tissue hypothesis that yeah. as our brains were, were growing, we probably had to shrink something else. So what do you think about this? I mean, tell us about the expensive tissue hypothesis and sort of the trade-off that might have occurred here. And I, it seems to me that animal foods played a big part in this because they're more nutrient-dense. That's right. So animal foods are going to be mission critical to this. I mean, imagine a super genius zebra. What good is it possibly going to do that animal that it can think about what Khan said? It's still eating grass, right? It's not gaining anything metabolically to pay the cost of that big brain. But once you have this group living species that already probably that already likes to hunt we know that because chimps love to hunt baboons even love to hunt uh but now it's got a more effective way of hunting it can work together it can throw stones we now see that that capacity allows it to start to plan for the future so remember i said that prior to them no animal could plan for a world of unfelt needs could envision the future by the time we get to homo erectus two million years ago we've got good signs that they can plan for the future the clearest evidence of all is the fact that they actually carry their tools with them. So these Oldowan tools, which were developed previously by Homo habilis or Homo erectus or, or Australopithecines, are never seen at any great distances from where they're quarried and made. So the animal clearly made the tool, used it, and thought, oh, never need that again. Whereas once you get to um, Acheulean tools and Homo erectus, they're now carried great distances away, which suggests that our Homo erectus ancestors were going, that's a really useful tool. I'm going to want it again tomorrow. Now, as far as this expensive tissue is concerned, until we get to Homo erectus, we see these really big rib cages that aim outward, and we see comparatively small heads. So remember, uh, Australopithecines about 450 grams. Homo erectus is now 960 grams. 
1350. So we literally got another chimp brain sitting on top of that. But at, at the smaller brain of an Australopithecus and a rib cage aiming almost straight outward, what that tells you is it's taking a lot of stomach and intestine to process the food in order to support a little bit of brain. When we get to Homo habilis, we still got a rib cage that sticks out a fair bit, and we got a bigger brain. But it's not till Homo erectus that the rib cage really goes flat like ours, and that tells you that we're shutting, we're reducing dramatically the amount of gut we have, and increasing dramatically the amount of brain. Now, how could you support a lot of brain with just a little bit of gut? A, it has to be much more nutrient dense, and B, cooking has to come in there somewhere because cooking makes it a lot easier to digest it. You know, when you eat raw food, it's a lot of effort to digest. And in fact, that's, I think, why the raw food movement has so many adherents. You've got a lot of people who are trying to lose weight. And so they get to eat the food, but then it takes so much energy to digest it that they don't get as many calories out of it. That's great for us when all we have to do is go to the fridge. Not so great for our ancestors who are struggling to bring in enough food to, to stay fed. Yeah, this is a very interesting point. And, and the expensive tissue hypothesis is so fascinating. The idea that if you look at a, a, a chimp gut, it has a very big colon and a huge voluminous cecum, which is the right side of the colon, in which they ferment all of the plant fibers to make short chain fatty acids. So people have even characterized chimps and primates as running on fat because they're using so many of the short chain fatty acids from vegetable fermentation rather than actually using a lot of glucose. But what appears to have happened is that we know that our colon shrank dramatically. Our small intestines, I think, got a little bit longer, but the overall size of the gut shrunk down. Our rib cages got flatter, as you're suggesting. And as you say, they needed the more nutrient-dense food, and that was meat. That was animals. It had to be, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, and this is the, the, the point that we kind of illustrated earlier, that 60 million years of primate evolution didn't allow this to happen, but something happened in our evolution we began eating different food, and then we changed dramatically. The, the bold statement, the bold hypothesis that I make in the book was, or the premise is, eating animals made us human, you know, that, that this was the key event in, in our evolution that made us human. What do you think of that? Look, I think you're exactly right. I mean, it's hard to say. So each key event has a key event before right. it and a key event after it, right? I totally agree with you that eating animals was mission critical. And then I would say, well, what, what enabled that? And that was more effective hunting. And yeah. what enabled, and then once we got those animals and we could build a little bit bigger brain, what did that enable? Well, it enabled more effective hunting still, right? We get better and better. And then simultaneously, what it also enabled is the control of fire. And that ends up, Richard Rangham argues, and I think he's exactly right, that it's mission critical that we could then start cooking. And so each step of the way allowed the animal to build the, bit, the brain that it has. Right. And then until it took the next step, it couldn't build the brain that we have, right? So yeah. from, from my perspective, it's a very long sequence of events. And the eating meat is a super critical link in that sequence. Without it, the whole thing falls apart. It's almost like one of the first events, it seems like to me, you know? And, and as you're suggesting, it was enabled by shoulder changes, the throwing arm, the pelvic girdle, the upright posture, the changes in the feet. Um, and are you familiar, have you ever heard of the uh, Peter's elephant nose fish? No, I don't know. This is fascinating. So there is a fish in African freshwater streams that also sort of illustrates the expensive tissue hypothesis. They have the biggest brain of any fish relative to their body size that's known, and they have the smallest gut of any fish that's known. So it's kind of this illustration, uh, you know, the, the expensive tissue hypothesis was advanced by uh, Leslie Aiello, I think, in the mid-1990s, and she cited this example of this fish that seemed to have the same correlation between a very big brain and a very small gut, and not surprisingly, this is not a fish that eats like plankton, it's a fish that eats other fish, right. it's a fish eating, eating higher uh, quality food, more nutrient dense food. And so let's talk about fire a little bit because we were chatting about this okay. before we jumped on the podcast. This is fascinating to me. And I think that as you noted, it's really hard to know when this comes in, but it seems like the, the inflection point or the jump in our brain size, or at least the beginning of the rise probably happened before fire. Um, okay. And then fire, as you're suggesting, was maybe one of these pivotal events along the way, because if people have seen this curve, there, most people are probably listening, but it's, it's logarithmic almost. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's kind of like slightly, slightly, and then 2 million years ago, just boom, there's this inflection point, and yep. it goes up very steeply, so yep. that between 2 million years ago and now, we went from 450 to 1,500, and then down to 1,350 cc's for our brain size, right? And so, so yes. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. 
No, and so somewhere in there, fire came in. Yes, that's right. And so, look, we it's it's again really hard to know exactly when it happens. Right. Uh, the when Rangham wrote his book, uh, Catching Fire, he argued that it has to go back to somewhere around the origins of Homo erectus, because to get to move from the sort of uh, animal whose um, rib cage sticks outward and his head is relatively small to an animal with a flat rib cage and his, and his um, cranium is relatively large, there has to be some event that enables you to extract more nutrients. Now, you could imagine getting there purely by becoming a much more effective hunter, because every gram, you know, every every kilogram of meat has a whole lot more nutrients in it and a lot more calories in it than a kilogram of any vegetable matter. So inconceivably, you could get to Homo erectus without any uh, need for fire. But the fact that the rib cage goes down so much suggests that, well, to, he argues, suggested fire played an important role. When he made that argument, we didn't, you know, I think it was, people were saying it was about 750,000 years ago. We already know now it's a million. So he's right. He's He's absolutely right that it pushes back further. And in all probability, there's bits and bobs of data that suggest it may even go quite a bit farther back, a million and a half. It's just hard to find that evidence. So there's a wonderful cave in South Africa where they can find over and over uh, evidence of burnt material. And it's just layered repeatedly in the sediment, all in the same cave, where, of course, caves don't catch on fire. And so you know they're bringing fire in. You know that they're using it regularly. Does it guarantee they're controlling it? Well, they have to control it for a while, or it would it would have gone out. It, you know, they're feeding it. They understand how it works. So that's at least a million years ago. I suspect that Rangham's correct that it goes pretty it goes pretty far back, pretty close to the first signs of Homo erectus on the planet, because it's consistent with the other abilities they had to um, to carry things around to plan for the future. In that way, we see signs of division of labor in Homo erectus. So it goes. It's consistent with all these other abilities that they have that they would have latched onto the importance of fire. Their ability to plan for the future would say, let me bring this burning branch back to my cave. Let me continue to feed it. Even if I don't know how to start it, I could probably keep that thing going for weeks and weeks at a time. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a fascinating thing to think about, like where that came in and how it affected us. I've, I've, I've kind of been puzzling over this a little bit in my mind. And one of the questions that I wonder about in sort of my interest in an animal-based diet is, is how cooking changes meat versus it changes plants. Because it's, it's clear to me that cooking makes plants more digestible. You know, if, if anyone's ever tried yes. to eat, eat a lot of raw garlic versus cooked garlic or raw broccoli versus cooked broccoli or, or, potato. or, or a, a potato is a great example or a tuber, you know, a cooked tuber is much more calorically, I would should say accessible. accessible. Yeah, yes, exactly. Then, then a then a raw tuber. But I've kind of puzzled over this because I've kind of messed around with raw meat and cooked meat, and I, I, I'll tell you, cooked meat is way more enjoyable than raw meat. Raw meat is not yes. is not is not distasteful. But I don't know if you've experienced this. Have you ever eaten much raw meat in your life? Well, you can eat. There's a couple of raw meats that are really nice. First, of course, raw fish like sushi. Yeah. It's like butter, right? So you choose the right animal and uh -huh. it's something you can easily eat raw. But also you can take raw meat and like treat it with lemon and things like that to help break it down a little bit. Uh -huh. And so it doesn't demand the control of fire. But of course, where are they getting the lemons that allows them to do that, right? Right, right. Other, if, I can't eat raw meat if it's not been, if it's not turned into something, you know, at a restaurant that's uh -huh. broken down the fibers. I, I find it it's gross to me and I love steak, but I find it kind of disgusting if it's not been treated in some way. What I've noticed with raw meat is that I can eat about half as much raw as I can cooked. And I think, what is going on here? And I, I need to kind of dig into the food chemistry a little bit and think about the way that cooking might change the structure of meat. I certainly know that cooking creates compounds that, that make our brains go a little wild. And there's probably some evolutionary origins for that as well. And cooking probably provided some degree of sanitation. Who knows how much we needed it? But it, it's, it's interesting to think, like, why would we have cooked meat if we could eat it raw? Or is it for preservation? Or what were we doing with it? But yeah, the, the way that, that when I try to eat raw meat, I cannot eat. It's very difficult for me to eat more than a pound of raw meat in one sitting. And that's a lot oh, of raw couldn't meat. come close. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a, a lot, lot of a lot of raw meat. I mean, usually it's ten ounces, and I'm done. Um, but with cooked meat, it's it's pretty easy. And and so I wonder about the accessibility because I've always thought, well, when you cook the meat, don't you make it? Are we are we make, are we making it? It's a question. I don't think we know the answer. Are we making the nutrients more accessible? But we're probably denaturing some of the heat labile things. It's fascinating. I don't think right. we know. 
Well, we, the, what, what we do know is, so Rangham has done some really lovely studies with snakes where he'll give them, he can measure how much energy it takes for metabolic energy it takes for them just to be alive, right? Because mm-hmm. you can measure their oxygen intake and you can measure all their metabolic activities at well, lots of them. And what he'll do is he'll feed a snake a raw mouse like it would typically eat. He'll grind it up to save it the effort of kind of chewing like like we do, you know, chimps spend eight hours a day chewing. So when you can't control fire as a, as an ant, as a primate, you spend a lot of time chewing your food up to get it ready to digest. And then he'll have a, a version that's cooked. And when he looks at the metabolic energy required to digest it, he, sh- he shows that it goes way down with mm. the cooked food. So we do know that you can extract more energy with less effort from cooked animal than you can from a raw animal. And the same, of course, holds for vegetables and things like that. As you point out, I don't know the chemistry, and I think it's not very well known of exactly how many things change for the better and how many things change for the worse. Right. But we do know that we can trust our senses, right? And so when I walk uh, outside and there's a big steaming pile of dog turd, and I go, oh, that's disgusting. What that's telling me is high pathogen load, low nutrient density, right? Right. <laughs> because it's stay away. That's what my nose is telling me. And when I smell a raw steak, I'm like, eh, kind of disgusting, kind of Okay. When I smell a cooked steak, it's like, holy cow. And, and the same thing happens to our chimp cousins. When there's a forest fire and they are in the area and they come through afterward, they're looking for all sorts of things to pick up and eat. They love cooked nuts. They love that stuff. And so they're as aware of it as we are, that there's much more value now in this product that's been cooked than in this product that hasn't. And so our taste buds and our nose has evolved to tell us when something has good nutrient density and low pathogen load. And those two things are massively enhanced when we cook them. Yeah, that's so fascinating that, that the chimps are even more attracted to cooked foods. Mm-hmm. I wonder what would happen. Has anyone ever done an experiment where they give, they put out, I suppose a lion is just going to eat steaks no matter what you give it. And, you know, but if you, I would just be interesting to throw like a five pound T-bone steak at one lion, uh, throw a raw one and a cooked one and see which one they go for first, you know, like. Yeah, that's a great question. They, of course, evolved to only eat the raw one. Their brain doesn't depend on the capacity to cook it. Nonetheless, especially if after they've learned, like they won't have any, there's no pre-adapt, they're not adapted to prefer the smell of cooked. Right. They might still, it would be a very interesting question you, that you're right. And maybe someone's even done that. I don't know of it. But I'd be fascinated to know, do they eat the cooked one the first time? How about the 10th time? And which one do they prefer? Which and one we do, do this test. Yeah, we do this test on my dog all the time. And because, you know, dogs will eat raw meat without problem. Right. And so we give them we, we give them raw chicken and cooked chicken, raw hamburger, cooked hamburger. And, and my dog prefers to cook every time. Oh, Mind that you, is loves fascinating. Raw. Yeah, she loves raw, but she loves cooked even more. That is so, fascinating. That is fascinating. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense because as you're suggesting and has previously been advanced, we've probably had fire for over a million years, many, many, many generations to adapt to this to adapt to processing, you know, the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that may be formed at a heterocyclic amines. Though, you know, I've talked previously that maybe we should think about how to mitigate those a little bit. Um, right. We don't know, but, um, but I mean, I think that this, I, yeah, I think that the smell of cooked meat is probably one of those that are deeply ingrained in, in my 1350 cc brain. <laughs> right? One thing I would add though, is that dogs have co-evolved with us. So they're not wolves. That's true. And so, the experiment with my dog is not as good as the experiment would be if I had a pet wolf, which I thankfully don't have, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. I mean, they have been. When did, uh, when did humans first domesticate dogs? Because this is kind of a fascinating thing, too. We started moving around with them. Yeah, we did start moving around with them. And I, I'm terrible about dates. I always get them wrong by a factor of two. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's much more recent than you'd imagine, though. The dog, mind you, it's a huge debate. People argue like crazy about this particular issue. And I, if I remember right, the numbers are like on the order of 20,000 years ago. It's yeah. super recent. And so even like dingoes in Australia, you know, we've had humans in Australia for over 65,000 years, but they, that's pre-dog. They didn't bring dogs over originally. That came over on a much later migration. And so, and, and you know, the dingo was originally a domesticated and now it's again a wild animal. So, and, and of course it probably happened at slightly different times in different places, but it's a very recent number. Nonetheless, it's a number that's super interesting. So the dog's genes have been changed a lot compared to wolf and they're different cognitively. They depend on us. They cooperate with us. They interact with us in ways that wolves, even if the wolf is, you know, you find a wolf pup, you raise it in your home, just like a dog. It won't be like a dog. Yeah. It's, it's certainly had some evolutionary changes even over 
20, 30,000 years. Yeah, exactly. It's very strong ones because we, you know, we decide which one lives and breeds and which one doesn't. Yes, so there's the a very pressure is super strong. Yeah, yeah. We have a very strong pressure on that as yeah. humans. And so one of the other adaptations that I've heard you talk about that I think is so fascinating is the whites of our eyes. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. See, I'd never heard about this, but I thought it was so interesting. Yeah. So the, the whites of our eyes is really interesting because our chimp cousins are all brown. Their eyes are all brown. And so when they look in a different direction, it's really difficult for other chimpanzees to tell where they're looking. That information is disguised. So other chimps are clever enough to be able to tell what they would be looking at, but they prevent other chimps from knowing that by making sure their eyes are all brown. That tells you that chimps are fundamentally competitive with each other. They don't want other chimps to know where they're looking and therefore what they're thinking. In contrast, we've evolved away from them to have these whites to our eyes, which tells us that we're fundamentally cooperative. I literally advertise to you when I look over there, which tell I would never do that except for the fact that what it tells us is that you must be more likely than not to help me get whatever it is that I looked over there to see. So it tells us that human beings evolved to cooperate in their mutual defense. So whenever I look over there, you'll, you'll help save me from it. And it also tells us that we evolved to cooperate in order to achieve our goals, because otherwise I wouldn't want you to know that I saw a tasty item over there or whatever it was. So it's a super interesting piece of biological evidence that we're advertising our thoughts to each other because we want to be on the same page. We want each other to know what we're thinking because more often than not, we're going to help each other achieve it. And this is one of the main concepts of the social leap, right? That this is the, one of the main differences, that, that humans are cooperative, whereas our ancestors yes. were competitive. And yes. when, when I heard you talk about this, I thought, isn't that cool? Because we need to cooperate to hunt. Uh, many yes. other things, right? We need to cooperate to, right. to protect ourselves. And, but we are now a social species. And surely this played into hunting or stalking. I mean, you know, that we can tell each other and you know, there are all the, it's, we see this in movies with special ops people using their eyes to gesture yes. to people and chimps could never do this. And so we know that these type of, this, this adaptation isn't yet another adaptation to cooperative uh, communication and cooperative communication, uh, like participation in group activities. One of the main ones, which had to be hunting, right? No, I totally agree. And so we tend to think of cooperation as our kindness, our being good to each other, and, and it is. But evolution doesn't care about that. It doesn't care if we're kind and good. It just cares if we're effective. And so once we moved on to the savannah, and for the first time in our evolutionary line, the group goals and the individual goals were perfectly aligned. If we could all throw rocks together, we could all protect ourselves better than by running away in our individual directions. Once that happened and we aligned our group and individual goals, cooperation was the outcome of that. What that means is that we evolved to cooperate in order to become more effective killers, in order to protect ourselves more effectively, and in order to kill other animals more effectively. And sure enough, but a million years later, we now see Homo erectus preying on animals much larger than themselves. You know, the, it's the animals that had, that had been preying on us, or at least had been dis destroying us when they encountered us, were now our dinner. And that was achieved via cooperation. It was achieved by virtue of the fact that they could plan, they could work together. And now you've got all these smaller entities very effective, with, with great tools, very effectively dealing with much larger entities. And hunting was an important part of that process. And we know that our ancestors were killing megafauna, you know, woolly mammoth, two to three times the size of elephants, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. These are people perhaps the same size as us, give or take. Pretty you much, know? yeah. Yeah, killing things that were larger than elephants in groups. And that may not sound like a crazy feat today when we're thinking about rifles or spears, but this is over a million years ago that our ancestors yep. were doing this in groups to kill things that are 20, 50 times bigger than they are. Pretty impressive. Yeah, super impressive. And, and not just bigger, but also faster. Yeah. So we're eating animals like horses and things across Europe where, you know, they're not there anymore, but horses and elephants, there's butchery sites in Europe where we've, uh, um, large groups of our ancestors have butchered them apart. And the data suggests we're quite clearly hunting them. And that requires planning, right? Let's scare the animal. It'll run over here. We've created a trap, whatever the, however they did it. And those bits and bobs have now been destroyed. But it was a thoughtful, cooperative process that enabled us to, you know, rise to the top of the food chain in that manner. We really, we really quickly became the apex predator on the planet. I mean, we did. And people would say, oh, clearly a lion is it. No, not, not, I mean, no. with humans and groups are the apex yeah. predator on the planet. And that's, I think, what you illustrate in the book is that, it, that it's that social grouping, that communication that made us the ultimate hunter, basically. 
Yeah, and for the example that I like to give, because I think it drives the point home really nicely, is imagine that you were dropped naked and alone somewhere in the jungle. You'd be super scared and you'd probably be somebody's dinner within a week. Imagine now you drop with 100 other people also naked, but no, no longer alone in that same jungle. Well, even if you guys never knew how to make a trap or anything beforehand, those 100 humans in that piece of jungle are literally going to take over the area. They're going to dig traps. They're going to make spears. They're going to do all the things it takes to survive because collectively, any random group of 100 mm -hmm. humans has this enormous collective knowledge. And it's that collective ability that changes everything compared when you compare us to the other animals. Yeah, yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit and kind of play out the end of this scenario for people. You know, Homo erectus 1.8 million years ago, and then there are fossils in Northern Europe from Neanderthal and Homo sapiens. Well, I guess we should not skip Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens arrives 350, 500,000 years ago, something Well, like no, that? not so much. We, it, people argue about, again, remember, they're all, it's all small gradations. Right. We typically say no farther back than 300. Mm -hmm. So we're going to call them archaic humans between two and 300,000 years ago. And by 200,000 years ago, they're definitely us. And I've heard you say in other podcasts that if an archaic human 200,000 years ago is walking down the street in New York City, aside from the fact they might be wearing nothing or a loincloth, right. looks kind of like us, pretty much. Exactly like us. Right. Even Homo erectus would, you know, 2 million years ago, or 1.8 million years ago, even they look basically like us. Small head, a bit rough hewn, but if you saw an Australopithecus at a zoo, you expect it to be behind the glass. You see Homo erectus at the zoo, you expect it to be a fellow visitor. By, the first Homo sapiens are indiscriminable from us, basically. And, and there's quite interesting evidence of, you know, Homo sapiens, we're still in Africa, right? So we're still, and then we moved around, right? Then we radiated. Right. So talk about this because there, this is kind of not so much on the topic of hunting, but it's fascinating. And I want to respect your time. So let me know when you sure. have to jump. But there are like, there's Neanderthals, Neanderthals and Denisovians and like yeah, so, so the way to think about it is around 1.7 million years ago, Homo erectus is the hominin species. That's our ancestor species. And they not only live in Africa where they initially evolved, but they start to radiate outside of Africa. So by one and a half million years ago, you've got them basically covering all of Europe and the lower half of all of Asia. Now, when they left uh, Africa, they only brought with them these very simple Oldovan tools, but they... Outside of Africa, they create the same Acheulean tools that we create inside of Africa. And in fact, Acheulean, the name comes from saying Acheul in France, where they were originally discovered. So their tools are all over the place. So now we've got Homo erectus in Africa and Homo erectus outside of Africa. And of course, both of them are continuing to evolve. And what's so fascinating is both of them are evolving in the cognitive direction. Both of them are getting smarter. So you go from 960 gram brain of Homo erectus 1.8 million years ago you go to our, one, our 1350, well, that doesn't matter if you're Neanderthal or us. Arguably, their brains are even a little bit bigger, although their bodies are a little heavier too. Um, probably it doesn't matter if you're Denisovan either. We don't have enough pieces to know yet. But there's lots of this sort of bushy branches of this tree because you've got Homo erectus evolving into toward us, uh, just because obviously that's the evolutionary pressure in Africa and outside Africa. And so when we then leave Africa, which we were doing in tiny bits over 100,000 years ago, but we start to do in earnest less than 100,000 years ago. We keep encountering Neanderthals, and then we encounter Denisovans, and we encounter others. And we, knowing humans as we do, we tend to interbreed with them. And so the, there's lots of the genes that those of us who left Africa have these Neanderthal genes, we have Denisovan genes. Those of us who stayed, not all of us, depends on the group you're in. Those of us who stayed in Africa don't, but keep in mind that we're all that we're now dating our cousins, so to speak, because it's Homo erectus inside and outside of Africa who evolve into Neanderthals versus us. And where, where were the Denisovans? That's way over. We don't know quite what range they cover, but we know they overlapped with Neanderthals, and we know that they're in now what's Russia. And uh -huh. so we know that uh, those of us, basically what seems to be the case, the current data suggests that when we, look, when we left Africa, of course, we went to Arabia, and then we took a right-hand turn and we went toward Asia. Then some of us took a left-hand turn and went back toward Europe. The ones who took the right-hand turn interbred with Neanderthals, as did the ones who went left back to Europe. But the ones who continued on deeper into Asia also, some of them interbred with Denisovans. Some of them probably interbred with other species that were only other archaic humans that we don't know enough about yet to, to be able to know what those genes are and where those um, ancient ancestors lived. Have you seen the studies um, looking at stable nitrogen isotopes from Neanderthal and early Homo sapiens in Northern Europe? I have not. Oh, they're no, super they fascinating. Show they show us that, well, 
the way that these work, as far as I understand it, is that they can look at nitrogen and carbon isotopes and yes. approximate where within the trophic levels we are, right? Because as we move up the food chain, there's more nitrogen. So if we're eating higher up the food chain, we have more D15 nitrogen and we can compare where wherever we were getting our protein from, we'll be able to tell. You know, herbivorous animals, I think off the top of my head, have like three to six percent, you know, or three to six percent of this D15 nitrogen omnivores, you know, maybe six to nine, and then carnivores, nine to 12. And what we found, what they found in those bones was they had more than 12%. So they were saying, whoa, these Neanderthals and early humans, homo sapiens in Northern Europe, 60, 50,000 years ago, were eating larger animals or more animals than other known carnivores at the time, like hyenas and caves or foxes and stuff. So it's kind of an interesting, I at least like point, it's an interesting illustration of the fact that you know, our ancestors might have been eating a lot of meat, you know, it's hard to say how much plant versus animal we were eating, but that those studies suggest we were eating a lot of it. We, we might have just been eating a lot of really big animals, but we were right. clearly eating a lot of animals. Right. I, I totally agree. And it seems possible to me that we're also eating other carnivores. Mm -hmm. And of course, once you eat other carnivores, you're then doubling that advantage, right? Mm -hmm. You're moving farther up the food chain, so to speak, because whatever they've eaten will bioaccumulate in them. Or sometimes it does, depends on the particular substance we're talking about. Yeah. But yeah, I, f I find those studies fascinating. I'm confident that Neanderthals were eating meat just like we are at, at very high levels. And I think that you know, if you look at hunter-gatherers today on the planet, there's not a vegetarian among them. No. You know, it's a big deal when they come home with meat because they're food stressed all the time. And if you're food stressed all the time, your flavor preferences shift toward what's calorically dense, where can I get more fat? And the answer to that question is always going to be other animals. Once we're in the opposite situation where we're we're overstressed by too much food. Now you can start to say, well, I prefer my food raw. I prefer veg vegetables over meat. It, those decisions become reasonable, but they just don't happen in any society that's actually got to ca capture and kill its own food. Everybody's keen. They're hungry all the time. And that means a strong preference for meat. Yeah. And I've, I've kind of argued that plants were probably mostly survival food throughout our evolution. If we could get meat, and I mean, I'm curious, you, you know, yep. if we could get meat, that was what we were going to get. If we could get animals, that's what we were going to get. And um, there are examples of that within hunter-gatherer tribes living today that when they get a kill, that's all they eat for two weeks. Yes. They don't go, they don't even yeah. mess around. They're not going to go gather <laughs> some sage. Like <laughs> right, they got a freaking, right. they got an antelope or a, or a gazelle yeah, or an or elephant or something that they can eat. Yeah. Yeah. They're eating that. Absolutely. They're eating, yeah. They're eating that. So let's, maybe we can just close with this. Like, what do you, how does this shape the way you live in your life and how does it shape your dietary choices and how, I mean, because surely that's, that's one of the reasons we all do this. You know, I think that when we're thinking about this, we bring it home and we think, what does this mean for me? And I'm just curious, you know, how that ends up for you. Well, uh, what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another, sure. right? So I try not to say that, you know, whatever is relevant for me may or may not be relevant for others because of course our microbiome is very different. Our genes are very different, et cetera. But what works really well for me is a diet that's really high in animal protein and then is also very high in fruit. So mm -hmm. that's almost what I live off. If, if when you look at hunter-gatherers, when they countered um, fruiting trees or berries, they literally park it there and consume them. And then they go on to the next place. And of course, they get meat whenever they can. And I'm not sure if that's why I do it, if that's where the idea occurred to me. But it works really well for me to basically live off a diet that's, you know, very heavy on chicken and steak and, uh, and animal proteins like that and fish, and also simultaneously very heavy on fruits and berries. Do you do you think about seasonality or make some effort to like kind of vary them or is it just, I mean, does that come into play? I, I'm curious. Yeah, so for me in Australia, it comes into play in the sense that our local fruit shop is a really great place. And of course, it's very sensitive to what's available here now. You yeah. can always get the other things that are shipped in, but they cost more and they're not as good. So mm -hmm. why not focus on what's available here and now when you live in a wonderful place like this? You know, yeah. if I lived in, in North Dakota in the winter, I wouldn't be eating any food, so I'd have to have it shipped in. Like you gotta yeah. be, you have to compromise with your world. But because I can eat what's available here and now, I, you know, right now we're in mango season, so I'm eating a ton of mango. Um, bananas are almost always ripe around here, et cetera. So I do shift a lot with the season just because that tastes better and it's more available. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, the last question that I always ask my guests is a little out of left field. I should have warned you about this one, but I'm just okay, kidding you. Cool. Hitting, hitting you with it off the cuff. What is the most radical thing that you have done in the last month? See, I'm a child of the 80s and I loved this uh -huh. movie Rad, which is a BMX movie growing it. up. Oh, it's yeah. an amazing movie. It's a BMX biking movie. And I just, 
I don't know. I've, it's become my shtick. I like the word radical. I just love the right. 80s. And so I always like, what is the most, but this is like 80s radical, you know, like this is like, wow, right. that's cool. So what is the most radical thing that you have done in the last month, my friend? Okay, let me preface it by saying I don't do radical things anymore, and that's why I'm still on this planet. <laughs> but with that preface, I'm, I'm a very keen rock climber, and we almost always just rock climb in the bouldering gym where, of course, you fall onto a mat. And uh, last week, we went out to the rocks, took a drive up north into the Glasshouse Mountains, and we spent the day climbing on the cliffs. And we, we literally couldn't really – you can't really hurt yourself. Even when I was lead climbing, I'm only lead climbing routes that are well within my scope. So mm. if I fall – I'm not falling that far, you know, because I'm already clipped on below mm -hmm. myself. Um, but for, I'm 56, and, and for me, that's about as radical as my life gets. That's pretty radical. I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, is, this, is a, this is a bolted climb. It, it's not trad. Well, no, it's not trad. I can't, uh -huh. I don't trust myself, and I don't, I'm not good enough at it. And right. I, don't, I don't know what, I'm, what pieces I'm putting right. in where. So it's all sport climbing. I just go with the bolts that are already there, and I click off, and up I go. That's, that's, that's a little more, I agree with you. I've only kind of dabbled with climbing throughout my life. And the few times that I've done trad leading, I just run it out because I was so scared. I was just like, I don't even want to stop and place gear. Like, <laughs> exactly. oh my, just like, Get me off you, this thing. Yeah, I just stop thinking. And you're like, oh shit, if I fall, I'm really deep, deep doo-doo right yeah. now. But well, thank you for coming on, my friend. It's been a really cool conversation. I so appreciate your perspective and your contributions to this. And I encourage people to check out your book, which is called The Social Leap. Where can people find more of your work and more of your stuff? Well, if you Google me, uh, I'm the only Bill Von Hippel on the planet, so far as I know. <laughs> it's the advantage of an unusual last name. And you'll find you know, talks and podcasts, and you'll also find all my articles. You can go into ResearchGate, for example, or you can just go into uh, – Google Scholar, any of those places, and you'll find the, the original research that we've done, and then things like the book, which are my efforts to make them more accessible. Because, of course, the original stuff that we do is full of statistics, and it's really full of jargon and kind of boring to read. But if the book is an effort to make it accessible and fun for everybody. And it's, it's such a cool history, so I really uh, want to thank you for coming on and <clears throat> helping us tell it. I think it gives context for where we are now and helps us all understand. And, and I mean, these these adaptations are just so striking. And I think it's just so undeniable that we are the way we are because we've been eating animals. And to forsake that is to really forget where we've come from. And I think that's a pretty big mistake for humans. Well, it's, it's, it's a mistake that you'd want to make very thoughtfully, right? So right. I think mistake might be a tiny bit too strong. It could work very well for some people, so long as you're super careful. But I totally agree with you. We evolved to eat animals. And what that means is if you want to shift away from that, if you want to make a conscious decision, I'm going to shift away from how my physiology and my biology is all designed, designed, you know, evolved, then you want to do it very thoughtfully so you can match it as well as you possibly can. Yeah. And, and that's, that's my approach because every people do benefit by different approaches. And from my perspective, the easiest, simplest one is stick with what worked for us in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that if people do go plant-based or want to go plant-based, they do have to do it with a lot of attention to potential nutrient deficiencies, anti-nutrients, yep. all these other sorts of things. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Totally agree. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you so much, my friend. I look forward to future collaboration and I owe you a steak. Uh, totally. My pleasure. It was fun talking to you. All right, you guys. I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Bill Von Hippel. I love the anthropology stuff. I learned so much from Bill. Isn't it fascinating about the whites of our eyes, the way we hunted? And as you guys all know, I've got a cookbook coming out in the fall. Maybe you didn't know that. The Carnivore Code Cookbook is coming out in the fall. It's super exciting. Collaborating on that one with the Strong Sisters on Instagram. We are going to have over 100 recipes, and we are going to include carnivore-ish foods too. If you've read my book, if you've read The Carnivore Code, you know that tier one is the least toxic plant foods. So we're going to make a cookbook with the least toxic plant foods. Of course, you can always exclude those and go hardcore carnivore if you want. But if you want to have some least toxic plant foods in your diet, I think that that is the answer for the majority of people. And we're going to have keto and carb carnivore versions. So we're going to have Carb carnivore, meaning that you don't have to be ketogenic to do a carnivore diet. And we're going to have carb, and we're going to have keto carnivore diets if you want to be low carb on a carnivore diet. How could you eat carbs on a carnivore diet, you say? Well, what about honey? And we're going to talk about all that stuff in the book and the low toxicity plants that might be uh, the best way to have carbs if you want to cycle in carbs or do a carb carnivore diet. All kinds of things. I'm blowing your mind right now, you guys. It's so exciting. Check out my book, The Carnivore Code. 
get excited about the Carnivore Code cookbook for later this fall. And please leave this podcast a review. Check out Bill Von Hippel's stuff, The Social Leap, and my thoughts on coronavirus. Do you guys want to hear this? I'm going to do a little video for Instagram today on my thoughts on coronavirus as well. But um, this is, I'm recording this on Monday, the 30th of March. All my stuff is so fresh, you guys. It's so fresh. Um, I am watching it very closely. Here's what I believe. We are wild animals. We are strong. And we should think about nutrition as the first step here. I believe the conversation around coronavirus is um, missing this conversation. I posted stuff on Instagram about diabetes, how many people in ICUs had diabetes. At one ICU, it was an N of one or it was an N of 15, but 14 of them had diabetes or prediabetes. It's crazy. This is where I think the conversation should go. Coronavirus is affecting young and old, but it is more virulent. Well, it's not more virulent, but it is more harmful to people who are not healthy. So how do we become healthy? Eat animal foods, kick butt, do workouts, be in the sun, be wild. That is the message that I think we need to not forget about coronavirus in any way, shape, or form. Do not forget that we are wild, badass, strong animals, and we are not to be fearful in these crazy times. And I think there is too much media hysteria. Yes, hand washing is important. Yes, social distancing. Yes, don't go cough on your grandparents, but do not live in fear. All right, you guys. I love you all. I will see you next week in the podcast. Let me know what you guys want to hear about. If you want to hear coronavirus 24-7, that's what I will do. If you want to hear other stuff, let me know what you want to hear about. I love you all. Bye. Wait. Not bye. Stay radical. (laughs) 